Well, good morning, church. If you haven't had kids around the age of two, between two and five, you're going to come to the age, it's, some it goes long beyond that, but you come to the but why phase of your, of your child's uh, growth and development. They begin to ask this question. They're not satisfied with facts anymore. They want to know why. And they're not satisfied with being told what to do. They want to know why. And the Ada Twist scientist even has a why song that you can watch that teaches your kids to ask the question why, to inspire their curiosity and to inspire their ongoing learning. And this is something that we need to do as Christians. It shouldn't go away when you're five years old. This is something that we need to bring to our own Christian faith. We can learn from our kids because they want to know not just content. Why are there seven colors to the rainbow? Why do I have to go to bed at seven o'clock? Why do I have to eat my vegetables? I need to know why. And the same is true for us as Christians. We are allowed to ask the question, why? And I think we often don't live to our fullest potential as Christians because we shortcut this question. We think that God is, he can't handle our questions. We're gonna bring something that he can't answer through his word and we're gonna stump him. But if we don't allow ourselves to question why we believe in God, then our convictions aren't gonna run very deep at all. And if we don't question our kids' faith or allow them to question why they believe what they believe, their faith is going to be stunted. And so Paul says, encourages us today in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses one to three, this next section, to look behind the curtain of all of the moral and ethical demands that God places on us and ask the question, why? Why, Lord? Because our world, just like our faith, is full of rules. If you're a kid, your parents have rules, don't they? And your classroom has rules, and your institutions have rules, and your workplace has rules. And if you play a sport or you want to play a board game, what happens when you show up? You're handed a rule book. You get a whole book of rules. I mean, you can't go a day in your life without running into rules. And if you don't know why you uphold the rules that you're given, it's only a matter of time before you get rid of them altogether. Or if you do obey them, it's just a matter of time before your heart is far from them. And so Paul reminds the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, that when he was with them, he gave them rules. He says, I gave you instructions. And this word, as you're going to see, literally means marching orders. I gave you exactly what you were supposed to do, how you were supposed to walk, who you were supposed to walk with, where you were supposed to go, all of the rules and precepts and ordinances and statutes of the Bible that multiply synonyms about what God calls them. But he says, I came to you and I gave you all of these. And when the culture looks at Christianity, this is all they see, isn't it? They see a complicated and comprehensive set of moral rules. And don't be deceived, it is that. But we want to say, but why a comprehensive and complicated set of moral rules? And so when Paul came to Thessalonica, he came with instruction. He came with moral guidelines and moral statutes. When Jesus came to the earth, he came with rules. And actually, he took the rules that were there and he made them stronger, didn't he? He showed the heart behind him. He said, don't even look at a woman lustfully or you're committing adultery. Don't even be angry with your brother in your heart because you can murder in your own heart. He came with moral and ethical rules and God himself with his own hand wrote the 10 commandments and put them into Moses' hands and they kept them. And the culture sees this as restrictive. They see Christianity as binding. They would say they see our rules as suffocating. And Christians 
often look at our own rules and they say these are binding and these are suffocating. And we see the Bible the same way as we look down and it says don't have sex before marriage, don't eat too much, don't have an abortion, don't fall in love with someone of the opposite sex, don't get a divorce, don't lie, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't be jealous of all your neighbor's goods, and on and on and on. And today in verses one to three, we're given permission to ask the great question, why not? If God has given me this, this heart, which is deceitful above all things, why can't I do the things that my heart is telling me to do when God's law says I can't? And remind you, our God is a big God and he can answer and handle your questions. So when we ask but why questions, we're not gonna stump him. There's not something that you're gonna ask that he hasn't already responded to in the Bible. And so if you don't understand the why behind all of God's moral instructions, and if you really don't think them through, it's just a matter of time before you're gonna compromise on them. Because when things get hard, it's gonna test where you stand on this and what you really believe about the things that God has told us. First Thessalonians chapter four, just so you know, we're coming to verses one through eight. That's our next major section. And while we're in here, we're gonna talk about ethics. This is the, there's this word finally that comes where Paul's dividing the book in half. And he does this a lot. And he's going to use the, word, use the word finally, which means we're moving on from all the stuff that we've been talking about. And it's still relevant. We're building on that. But now we're moving to a new section. And all the rest of the book is practical, ethical instruction for our life. He's going to apply it generally today. And we're going to see why do we do the things that we do. And next week, he's going to apply ethics to our sex life. And then in the following week, he's going to apply ethics to our work life as he gets intensely practical on, again, why we do the things that we do. And if we're going to say we're in this great ethical section, I want to stop and say and define what is ethics? What are ethics? Ethics are moral principles that govern a person's behavior. They're the rules that you follow that guide what you do in your life. Ethics is also the branch of knowledge that deals with those exact moral principles. And so ethics asks two great questions. Number one, how should we live? An important question. And the follow-up, and the greatest question, why should we live that way? And if you look to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, that's as far as we're going to get this morning, the text answers these two questions. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So he asked the question, how should we live our life? Answered by verses one to two. And then he says, but why should we live that way? Why should we listen to the things that God has told us to do? And that's the great question, uh, the, the great answer that verse three gives. And so in verse one to two, looking at how we live, Paul calls on Christians. He calls on this faithful church and he says, brothers, he calls them brothers. He says, we ask you in the Lord and we urge you in the Lord. It means to beg, we beg you in the Lord to live according to the instructions that you received from us. And so we've already looked at this word. He says, we give you, he says, you've received from us instruction. You go back to chapter two, verse 13. We've seen this word before. 
And we saw that when Paul talks about receiving something and he's using this word, he's talking about not just his words, but all that he's bringing with him. It's the whole tradition. They've received a tradition that Paul has brought and it's the tradition of the church that began in Rome, that, that moved throughout all of these faithful churches and, and he's bringing it to them. And he says, you have it. It was successfully handed off from me to you and now you have received it, meaning you've, you've hidden this in your heart. They've received the tradition of the gospel and every moral command that came with it. The words of our Lord, the words of Paul. And then he says in verse two, you know what instructions we gave you. And the word instructions is a military word and it literally means marching orders. This is a, a command from a superior to an inferior saying this is what you're supposed to do. This comes from on high, right? This, this is your commands. They're marching orders and what that means is they're binding moral instructions. And scripture is full of these marching orders. Matter of fact, if you go to Psalm 19, which is an abbreviation of Psalm 119, they, they run out of words to call it God's rules. And so they make up a bunch of different uh, synonyms. He calls them laws and precepts and statutes and ordinances and commandments and testimonies and rules. And you get the idea. Our religion is full of rules. And he says, you don't just have them, you've received them and, and you're living them. He tells the Thessalonians, and by extension us, you all know how to live. You know what Christianity demands of you. And every one of you that puts your faith in Jesus, you're supposed to count the cost before. And part of that cost is looking at all of these rules and saying, am I willing to submit all of my life to all of these moral statutes that God has given? And he says to them, you have all the do's and don'ts of Christianity. You've received all of the instruction. And so the call for them is not to commit themselves to a morally pure life. They've already done that. And the same is true for you. The call is not for you to submit to a morally pure life. You've already done that, I pray. And so what they're asking is, what Paul is asking of this church is that they increase in it. That they take the moral demands of God, they love them more, they increase in them. And so he use his language, he says they are to abound in this. And so what's lacking for the Thessalonians is not some kind of deficit in their spiritual walk. What they're lacking is a superabundance of morality and purity and love and fellowship. It's not that they don't already have it. He says, God calls you to a life of superabundance, not just a little bit, not just the status quo, not just doing the basic amount. And he says, I want you to have abounding love. We saw this last week, abounding fellowship. And now he adds into it a superabundant faithfulness and moral purity. Listen to what he says in chapter three, verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound. Chapter four, verse one, our text this morning, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Chapter four, verse 10, we urge you brothers, we beg you do this more and more. And before you start to feel constricted and, and suffocating under the rules and the demands and the obligation that God's putting you on a Christian, as a Christian, chapter four, verse three answers the great why question. Here's the load, here's the requirement, and now we get to say why. Verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that word for, do we have any but why people in the room that never grew out of it? If you're a but why person, you're gonna love the book of Romans because every other verse starts with the word for, 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 for. And every time you see that word for, I want your mind to go, he's giving a reason. 
He's telling me why I'm supposed to do something. And it's what he's doing right here. He says, for brothers, saying, I'm giving you the reason why you're supposed to do all this. He says, because God's will for you as a Christian is your sanctification. That's what it means to abound. That's what more and more means. It means you've been called to this process where you've never, you've arrived, but you haven't arrived. You're faithful, but you can be more faithful. And the word sanctification is a big word. And it's one that gets thrown around the church all the time, but it's one that you might not know the definition of. So I want to stop here and define it so that you know what this word means. Sanctification is an English word that's built on two Latin words. The first one is sancta, which means what? Holy. And the second one is facare, which means to make. And so you put them together. What does sanctification mean? It means to make something holy. And we'll see this doesn't come out of thin air. He's pulling this from somewhere. And you're going to see, actually, you, you can't understand the New Testament without Leviticus. And he pulls this word from the Old Testament sacrificial system, as you'll see. And it means to make holy. Holy here representing your moral purity. It's ethics. It's God's moral demands. And it's the process by which, over a lifetime, God actually makes you holy. He declares you to be holy. He gives you his Holy Spirit. He calls you a saint, which is the same root word that means holy. And over a lifetime, guess what happens in your life and in your Christian walk? You become holy as God is holy. So this underlying word for sanctification is actually used three times in verses 1 to 8, but you might miss it because it's not always translated the same way. It comes in verse 3. It comes in verse 4. It comes in verse 7. Verse 3 could read this way. For this is the will of God, your holiness. It's the same word, sanctification, same word in scripture for holiness. It's the same word in verse four that reads that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Same word in verse seven when Paul says, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. It's the same word and it's the same root word that comes in verse eight when he shows you the source when he says, God gives his Holy Spirit to you. Same root. And if you want to understand this section and what it really is and all its fullness, we need to stop and, and ask ourselves, what is this holiness that we're called to? This holiness that we're to abound in. It's God's will that we be holy. And so I want to teach you something foundational about holiness. And through it, I want to teach you something foundational about the God you serve. So when the Bible talks about holiness, there's four aspects to it four different features of it that get emphasized when scripture uses this word. And the first one, we call it in theology, transcendent holiness, which is a way of saying that God is high and lifted up. And this is a title that is reserved for God alone. He alone dwells in inapproachable light. He's a cut above us, morally separate from his creatures. This is who God is, lofty and exalted in the heavens. He's adorned with kingly majesty and royal splendor, and he shines with radiant glory. And as you read through Thessalonians, it, it tells us something about this transcendent glory. All of these are immediately relevant to our passage, and it says, this is not something that you will ever comprehend. This is something that we are meant to stand in awe of. This isn't something that we share in common with God. He's a cut above us. This is our transcendent, holy God. And the second we call moral holiness. This means, this emphasizes that God is morally perfect. He's morally pure. He's flawless. He's sinless. There's no defilement. There's no darkness. He's the light of light. 
He's intrinsically pure. And all of that as well is, is wrapped up in the fact that all of goodness and being and mercy and love are from him. He's the fountain of all holiness and joy. And so he's the fountain of all goodness. And this is what he's calling us to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, when he says, into his own moral purity and excellence. This is the holiness you're called to. Hebrews 12.10 says, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness because he's the fountain and the source. Third is his judicial holiness, and this is where it gets somber because for God who is holy, there's a reaction against everything that is not holy. There's a reaction against sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. And so 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 6, we'll get there next week. It says, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, all sin is punished. And this is a solemn matter. This is a sobering reality that every sin that has ever been committed will receive its full penalty either at the cross or in eternity in hell. God's flood was a picture of this. That's his judicial holiness that has to react against unrighteousness. It's like Uzzah touching the ark and dying immediately because it's holy and he was not. And finally, comprehensive holiness, which is just a, a fancy way to say every single thing about God is holy. Holy is his name. He says in his commandments, you get a sense of it as you move through it. The first commandment, he says, you will have no other gods before me. He set apart. That's what it means. Holiness in the original in Hebrew meant to cut, to be separate. And God is separate from all creation. There is no other God. Second commandment, for that reason, you shall worship nothing else. Nothing else can be the focus of your heart because he alone is your God. There are no idols. The third commandment, he says, don't even take my name in vain because my name is holy. And are you starting to get a sense of who this God is that we serve? And I hope not because we're going to go, we're just getting started. Because through this sermon, I hope that you'll see who this God is. And we need to linger here if we're going to answer the great question, why? Why are we supposed to live according to all these rules and commandments that he's given us? Why do we need to live morally excellent lives? And if we're going to understand how we ought to live, look at 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1. He says, how you ought to walk and to please God, meaning why you ought to stay married. If you want to know why you ought to wait to have sex until you're married, if you want to know why you ought to lie, not to lie and to steal, then you first need to be reminded of who God is and what this holiness is that you're called to. He says, this is God's will for your life, your holiness. Hebrews 12, that you share in his holiness. Talking about ethics, A.W. Tozer says, a right conception of God is basic to practical Christian living. I believe there's a scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Do you believe that's true? There's not a sin that we commit that doesn't ultimately come back to something that started in our mind and a wrong thinking about God and his commandments. Evan Lino, my, my ethics professor in seminary said, Knowledge of the holiness of God is the starting point of ethics. It's the starting point of living a moral and holy life. Worship is the goal, that's the end point, but holiness is the starting point, end quote. You can't understand what a holy life looks like if there's no holy standard, and that's God. If you wanna know what you're called to, God is the standard. He is the source of goodness. He's the source of holiness. And without him, 
Without a standard, everybody would be left to be doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's what you see in scripture. That's what you see in the judges. There's no standard. They don't submit to God's rules and God's law. So everybody does what they think is right. And if you want to know what that looks like, look at your own culture. There is no God. And so everybody does what's right in his own eyes. Everybody's the judge of their own morality. When in reality, we have God who sent his only begotten son into this world the only person who ever lived a life that was completely holy, the only person who ever lived a life that by God's own testimony perfectly pleased God. And so now, not only do we have the standard of holiness, but he showed us every day recorded in scripture exactly what a perfect life looks like. And so we have no excuse. We see holiness throughout scripture. The word is used over and over. The word holy is used 698 times in the Bible as a way of saying it's important it's used in 52 of the 66 books of the Bible. It comes first in Genesis 2-3 when Moses says, so God blessed the seventh day and made it what? Holy. And it comes all the way to the last three chapters of the Bible. When you come to Revelation 22, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in his holy city. And then here's how all of the Bible ends. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with, be with us all. Amen. Genesis 2 to Revelation 22 and all the books in between. You can't get anywhere in scripture. Every stone you pick up, God's holiness is there. And every leaf you look behind, God's holiness is there. And I want to give you a brief survey just to show you what God wants you to know about himself. All the way back, we said it starts in Genesis 2-3, on God's holy day. He makes this day, and he declares it to be holy. And then he begins to put his holiness on display throughout that book. He gives a holy command to Adam and Eve, doesn't he? You may eat of any tree of the garden, but of this tree you shall not eat. And you see his judicial holiness come out, because what do they do? They eat the apple or the pomegranate, whatever it was. They take and they eat, and his holiness responds in response to their, their unrighteousness. And then a holy curse comes as he curses the ground and he curses the womb. And God is working against the unrighteousness of men even in Genesis 6-5 as a holy flood comes upon the earth in response to mankind and his unholiness. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, on the earth, and so every living creature, save two of every animal, seven of every clean animal, and eight people were killed in that great picture of God's judgment. And the sobering reality comes not only that it was that every living thing was wiped off the face of the earth, but they were simultaneously damned. God's holiness was put on display in Genesis. You see God's holy ground in Exodus 3, 5. Moses is called by God to Mount Horeb and there's a, a flaming fire, a bush is on fire and it's not being consumed and Moses goes to it and what does God say to him? Take off your shoes. You're in my presence. This is holy ground. Moses leads through the Exodus and once he makes it across the Red Sea, he looks back and he sings a song. And there's a song that he sings in Exodus 15, 11 to 13, which is a song that we need to get to know because when we've crossed the great sea and revelation of trials and afflictions and we stand on the shores of heaven, it says we sing the song of Moses. What was the song that he sang? What's the song that we're gonna sing forever in eternity? Jeff, you should write a song about Exodus 15. Moses says, who is like you? 
majestic in holiness. In your strength, you will guide your people to your holy dwelling. And then we move to Horeb, which was a mountain where there's lightning and peals of thunder and no animal or person can come to the mountain lest they die. Save one person, Moses can go to this holy mountain. And it was there that God gives his holy law that was to be obeyed. And not only that, within that law, he, he gives the sacrificial system, which is recorded in Leviticus 1 to 6. All these sacrifices are called holy. God says, quote, this is the law of the sin offering and the place where the burnt offering is killed shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. And what happens if you react against this and you don't worship God the way he asks to be worshiped? Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, the very first sin committed in the temple they're struck dead for bringing strange fire before the Lord. He gave them his holy law, and they didn't keep it. And this was the first sin that's recorded in the temple. And God strikes them dead immediately, saying, there is to be no sin among my people. And is that just an Old Testament thing? No, you come to the church in Acts with Ananias and Sapphira, the first recorded sin in the church. What happens to them in the middle of a worship service? They're struck dead. God is saying, you are my people, and I'm a holy God. There is to be no sin in my church. That's the high calling that we're called to. Joshua, like Moses, has to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. In chapter 11 of Leviticus, over and over throughout that book, he says, be holy for I am holy. Jesus will quote it saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. First Kings 6, Solomon builds the house of the Lord, which is God's holy temple. And there's a place in that temple. In my head, I think it looks a lot like this, whatever this is back here. There's God's holy temple. And there's this place where you can't go because it's called the holy place. And only priests can go in there and only on a certain rotation and at a certain period of time. And then within that, there's another place that's called what? The most holy place. The holy of holies. Who lives there? Whose presence dwells there in darkness where no man is to see and no man is to go? That's where God dwells, unseeable, unapproachable, save one man after he's purified, after atonement's been made, and only once a year. This is the Lord of glory. As we work through the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 3, Uzzah touches God's holy ark and is stricken dead immediately. Over 50 times in the Psalms, God is called holy. In Psalm 2, God sets Christ upon Zion, his holy mountain, and then the pinnacle of this subject comes in Isaiah 6. When Uzziah has been stricken dead with leprosy for his pride, and Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the angels, the seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And his response is our response. What did Isaiah do in that moment? The only acceptable response for a man in the presence of God is to say, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm undone. I'm disintegrated. I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the King of hosts. And he said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And he said, here I am, send me. That's the response. 
when you see the holiness of God on display and you see in that moment your own sin, there's one response, woe is me. And the thrice holy God, holy, 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 the only other place there's a thrice word, it comes with with God himself when he says, woe, woe, woe to those who practice unrighteousness. And that's the response of God's judicial holiness. One more in the Old Testament, Isaiah 57, says his very name is holy. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from the people's way, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's God. And you often compare your own morality to the morality of your friends and your coworkers and your uh, family, and you put your holiness on one side of the scale, and you'll put the, the perceived holiness of your friends, you'll put you on your best day and them at their worst day on the scales, and you'll say, well, I'm a pretty good person based on this standard. And in scripture, you're never pitted against another believer for the standard of your holiness. In the Bible, God puts you on one side of the scale and God's holiness on the other side of the scale, and you never measure up. You, you can't measure up. And the only response from mankind is what Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone, because you are approaching the Lord of glory, the God of lights who dwells in unapproachable light, and the closer you come to him, you realize that your soul is full of darkness and sin. And that's what I wanted you to do this morning as we prepare for Lord's Supper, and in a few minutes as we prepare for Lord's Supper, we recognize there's, there's darkness in our souls. We're full of sin even though we don't want it to be there. And we ask God to remove it and the righteousness of Christ to cover us. But there is no measuring up to God's light. That's what God is. There is no darkness in him at all. And if we were to stop right here in Scripture, we would have no hope. But I want to say, does the New Testament have anything to say about God's holiness? Matthew chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. A holy conception. Luke says, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Now, this holy God, now we have somebody else that's called holy, and it's his only begotten son. A holy conception from the Holy Spirit producing a holy child who's called light, and in him there's no darkness. And this child grows up to be a man, and he prays a holy prayer in Matthew 6, 9, which is the same root word as in our passage in Thessalonians, where he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that's a, that's a request, that's a, a command. He says, make your name holy. Make it hallowed, treat your name holy, revere it, consecrate it, make it renowned among the nations. That's what he's asking. Extend God's holiness on the earth. Luke 4:44. a demon cries out to Jesus and he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Acts 2.4, God sends his spirit at Pentecost who's called what? He's the Holy Spirit. That's who he is. Hebrews 7.26 lists all of the attributes of Jesus as our high priest, and the very first attribute on that list of Jesus is holiness. 1 Peter 1.15, it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Revelation 4.6, angels cry out from eternity past to eternity future, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to is to come. And the culmination of all scripture comes at the end of Revelation. We've already read it. When God says one day he's going to keep his holy people 
You are literally called holy ones. That's what saints means. He says, I'm going to keep all of my saints until that day when you are with me in my holy city. So I hope you see there's no stone you can look under where this is not there. This is something that is priority about God. This is issue number one. This is a gospel level issue. This is the God that we serve. He's holy. D. Lloyd-Jones says, without starting with holiness, there is no point to the cross because God is the standard. God is light of light and in him is no darkness. You are full of darkness. And what I want you to think in mind is if God dwells in inapproachable light and how can you come into his presence? Uzzah, when he just touched the ark, died. How can you expect to be in the presence as a sinful man of a holy God? And here's the, the gospel, that God calls you to be holy and you weren't. And in your place, God brought a son. He sent his only begotten son into this world whom he called holy. And from the moment that that, that child was immaculately conceived, he lived one holy, perfect, righteous life. And he lived a life that met all of these moral commands, all of the commands that God has given you in Leviticus, all 600 and some odd of them, all of the commands that Christ gives you in the New Testament, he kept them all perfectly. And that's why his name is holy. And so when you can't measure up to God's law and you can't and you won't, he's provided a substitute who lived a perfect life and through faith, through believing that his life can be attributed to yours, he treats you as if you lived Jesus's life so he can treat the Holy One of God as if he lived yours. And so we say, are you holy? No, but you're treated as if you were. Was Jesus a sinner? No, he was holy, but he was treated as if he was. And that's the great picture where you're clothed in the white robes, that you're clothed with the majesty and the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus so that now you don't have to keep those commands because they were kept for you. But God gives you his Holy Spirit and he changes your heart to now where his commandments are not burdensome for those who love him. You want to keep the commands. You want to be holy because God is holy. You want to be like your savior who gave his life for you. And so if you would just trust in Jesus and you can do it today and you can do it now, if you would trust that his holiness can actually allow you to stand in his presence and to be in his inapproachable light, it's now approachable for you through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel according to holiness. Now we keep his rules, not because we have to, but because we love to. And our text is 1 Thessalonians 4.1 again. I want to pivot back and he says, this is now how you walk. This is how you ought to live and how you ought to walk. And the word walk is a metaphor. It doesn't mean how you literally walk. It's a metaphor for your Christian life. This is how you live day in and day out. Peripateo, how you conduct yourself, how you behave as a habit. This is what Christian walking is. He says, this is how you are to move and breathe and have your being is now to, to live your life, it says, to please God. And we said that this word sanctification is important. It's a, it's a lifelong process. Now that God has declared you to be holy, the beauty is through his Holy Spirit, he actually makes you holy. And this subject doesn't come out of thin air. I wanna take you back to Leviticus and I'll frame the whole book for you because there's three categories of people in that book. You can be unclean, you can be clean, or you can be holy. That's the only categories that exist. And what happens if you're holy and through sin or sickness, comes on your life, what happens to you? Well, you become clean. 
You're profaned is the language. What happens if you're clean and sin or sickness enters your life and into your soul? Well, you've been polluted and you become unholy. And now how do I move from a state of being unclean or unholy back to being holy? There's only one way. Every time is by sacrifice. There must be sacrifice. That's why every time infirmity or sin comes, there had to be death. There had to be blood spilled. And so scripture says that if you're unclean, to be made clean again, you are cleansed, which is a word that the New Testament uses, doesn't it? You have been cleansed from all your unrighteousness. Wash me, Lord, with hyssop, and I shall be white as snow. You're cleansed. That word didn't come out of nowhere. And then what happens if you're clean and you need to become holy? The word in Leviticus is you are sanctified by a sacrifice. And once you have been sanctified, you have been made holy. And church, we've already said the sacrifice has been made. And in the Old Testament, you, become, you would become holy or you become clean and you become unclean. It would be a sacrifice. You become unclean, a sacrifice, over and over and over. And all those look forward to the day where there would be a once-for-all sacrifice where there would never need to be another made. And that's what Jesus did because he was holy. And so now that the sacrifice has been made, the way has been paved for you to actually become like your Savior. And so the great why question here in our passage, first he says, how should we live? I hope you see the answer is you should live a holy life. That's God's will for you in Christ. And then the great why question, why should you live this way? The answer, because this is why the Holy One, the Lord of glory, left heaven. This is why God came to the earth. This is why the second member of the Godhead took on flesh. Why should you live a holy life? Because this is God's will for you. God's will for you is that you would be sanctified, and that you would be as holy as he is holy. And it's because our holiness pleases God. It's because the spirit has given you new desires and a new heart. And it's because this is what will bring your soul joy. If you would live the way that God intended you to live, it will go well for you. Your heart will be blessed. Your life will be joyful. That's why it says in chapter four, verse one, we ask you to do these things. And he moves on from that. And he says, and we beg you to do these things. Live your life like this. This is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to walk. This is how you will please God. And how does he know what will please God? It's a fun trivia question. How many times does God speak out of heaven in the New Testament audibly? And the answer is two. Nobody said it. You didn't know. Shame on you. He says two times. First one's at Jesus' baptism. He says the same thing. Matthew 3, 17, behold, a voice out of the heavens, God speaking, says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Second time is in the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, 5, while Jesus was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when Jesus spoke, what did he say except love your neighbor? care for the orphan and the widow, be holy as I am holy. He gives you all of these moral commands. And Jesus lived a life that perfectly pleased God. That's what made him an acceptable sacrifice for sin. And the beauty of this passage is if you're a saint and you're a holy one, now you live a life that pleases God. And here's the really inexpressible thought. You not only please God, but he says now if you will lean into these ethical instructions that God's going to give you, you can abound in pleasing God. You can be more and more pleasing to him. You can increase and live a life that pleases him more and more. And 
This passage teaches that you don't have to go around searching for God's will. MacArthur said it humorously, God's will is not like, he's not like the Easter bunny who leaves his will out there for you to go find. And he's just in heaven wringing his hand saying, oh, I sure hope they find out what my will for their life is. He shouts it here. Above all else, he might not have a specific time and a specific place and a specific college and a specific spouse, but here is his will for your life, your holiness. And I once met a woman who said she had been doing nothing for years because she was sitting and waiting for God to reveal to her exactly what he wanted for her life, what his will was for her. And that broke my heart. Because you get, I mean, if you, you've got his will, there's, there's so much in here, it would take you a thousand lifetimes to obey all the things that God has called you to do. And in, in this very church, another individual came up to me and I asked him after the service, will you please help me set up chairs in the sanctuary? And he said, I don't think that's God's will for me. To which I want to say, go to this passage and say, God's will for you is holiness. Now go stack chairs and help me. What I should have said, God's will for you is to be holy. So you've got rules. They're not choking. They're not strangling. Uh, they're God's will for you in Christ. And in this life, these rules, if you follow them blindly, without really asking the why question and wrapping your heart around them, we call that legalism. They don't mean anything to you. You just go through the external ritual, and that's, that's not pleasing to God. What he wants is your heart. He wants you to understand the why behind these moral instructions. And if you really don't think through all of this, it's only a matter of time before enough pressure comes that you're going to compromise on them. Why do we obey his commands? Because we can be like Jesus. Because it pleases God. Because it's his will for us. Because the Holy One sent his Holy Son to redeem the sinful souls of his holy church. And he gives them his Holy Spirit that they might live holy lives until we are with him one day in his holy city where the angels never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come.